Hi, good morning. My name is Reen and I'm a member here at One Covenant Church. Today our scripture reading is from Exodus chapter 14, verses 10 to 30. Exodus 14, verse 10. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly, and the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians, for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. Verse 15. The Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all of his hosts, his chariots, and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gained glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. Then the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them, and the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of of Egypt and the host of Israel, and there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up in the night without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on the right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watch, in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, Let us flee from before Israel. For the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen, of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. This is the word of the Lord. 
Thank you so much, Rain, for reading for us uh, the passage so well this morning. And good morning to all of you. For those of you who uh, have not yet met, my name is Z. I'm the pastor here at One Covenant Church. So good to see you. And if I've not had an opportunity to talk to you, please do uh, approach me after the service. We'd love to get to know you. Uh, we do want to commend the Q&A to you. That's also a place where we can get to know you and hear from you. Any question that you have on your heart, we'd be uh, more than happy to answer it. If we can't find an answer to your question, we'll get back to you on that. Would you join me in a word of prayer as we see God's help uh, to understand his word this morning? Father, we thank you that your spirit is present with us. You promise us in your word that when we gather, you are present with us. God is really among us. So we pray that as your word is explained this morning, you take me out of the picture and you would speak to your people in a specific way. Father, many are facing daunting times, uncertain times, and we pray today that your word would be clear, would be compelling, and would be encouraging. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, friends, if you've just joined us, we're working our way through the book of Exodus. We're here today in Exodus 13 to 15. And over the last few weeks, we've traveled through the book of Exodus step by step. Let me give you a quick recap to bring you up to date. You know, when you watch a Korean drama, usually at the end, there's a summary of the episode that has just gone before. And then when you start the new one, there's a short summary. And why do you need that summary? Well, to kind of jog your mind and remind you of all the things that have happened. So let me do a quick recap of the things that we have covered. In Exodus 1 and 2, we have Israel, God's people, oppressed as slaves in Egypt. They were in a terrible situation. They were in despair, and they cried out to God for help. God, in his mercy, raised up a deliverer, a man by the name of Moses. Moses was fully Egyptian, but also fully Hebrew, and, they would, and God would use Moses to deliver his people. But at the end of Exodus chapter 2, Moses was not yet ready to deliver the people of Israel. So from Exodus 3 to 7, we see God preparing Moses to be the deliverer that he is meant to be. Through so many painful circumstances, Moses becomes the prophet that would go back to Egypt to deliver God's people. In Exodus 7 to 11, we see that the king of Egypt, Pharaoh, was a ferocious king. He would not let the people go. He was considered the God of Egypt. He did not regard the God of Israel, and he would not let the people go. We saw then in Exodus 7 to 11, through Moses, God brings Pharaoh and Egypt to its knees. He sends the ten plagues, one after another, compelling Egypt to let God's people go. Finally, they relent, and they release Israel from slavery. But before Israel leaves, in Exodus 12 and 13, God institutes, among other things, the Passover meal to remind Israel never to forget, to remind them never to forget that God is the one who delivers them from the Egyptians. God is the one who rescues them. That brings us to Exodus chapter 12, verse 38. And it says here that a mixed multitude went up with them. They left Egypt. And it's very important to note that the Israelites were not the only one who fled Egypt. There were many Egyptians who saw the power of God, the reality of who God was. They trusted in God and they joined with the Israelites and left Egypt. Now, why is that important? It's important because we need to know that God is always saved by grace. It has never been about a particular ethnicity. It's always been about whether or not we will trust in God and join with his people. 
there were many Egyptians who saw the power of God, who trusted in God, who joined with the Israelites and left Egypt. Just like today, how are we saved? By trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, by being added to the church. The way they were saved is exactly the same way that we are saved. Now, friends, from this point onward in the story, you would expect things to be smooth sailing. After all, God had come in great power. God had rescued his people. So from this point onward, it should be glory to glory. It should be effortless and endless prosperity and progress. But instead, what we find in Exodus chapter 14 is that Israel is trapped between a rock and a hard place. You see, Exodus 14.9 tells us that Pharaoh changed his mind. He regretted allowing God's people to leave. And so he sent his horses and chariots, his horsemen and his army to capture them. Israel finds themselves with the Red Sea in front of them and Pharaoh's army behind them. Verse 10 tells us in Exodus 14 that they feared greatly and once again, they were in despair. They cried out to the Lord. And maybe, friends, you are in that kind of a place too. You feel stuck. You can't move forward and you can't go back. You're stuck and you're wondering to yourself, I thought I was one of God's people. Why am I in this place? Why am I in despair? Well, friends, the book of Exodus, chapter 13 to 15, has much to teach us about what it means to follow God in the spiritual life. The great reformer Martin Luther saw in the Red Sea crossing an analogy, a picture of the Christian faith. And I think he's right because the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 6 says that these things, referring to the Old Testament saints and the things they experienced, they took place as examples for us that we might not sin against God. So friends, as we look at Exodus 13 to 15, I want you to know that this isn't just a distant story. This is your story. This is my story. This is our story of walking through the waters. So let's look at this text in three parts. There's a movement, a movement from despair to deliverance to delight, from despair to deliverance to delight. Let's begin with despair. Open your Bibles and come with me to Exodus chapter 13, verse 17. It's not printed there in your bulletins, but we're covering a bigger chunk of the passage than it's there. Exodus 13, 17. And this is what the Word of God says. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. You see, on their way to Sinai, they were being led by God. And this text here tells us that God was caring very much about their well-being. You see, the shortest route would have taken them through Philistine territory. But you see, they were not yet prepared to fight the Philistines. The people of God were not yet ready. And so, God, caring for their well-being, knowing their emotional state, decided to lead them by a longer route, but by a safer route. So God was leading them, and God was with them, and what God was caring for them. Now, in verse 19, it says that they took the bones of Joseph with them. Now, why were they doing that? You see, at the end of the book of Genesis, Joseph tells the people, his descendants, 
when you leave the land of Egypt, take my body with you. It was probably embalmed. And so he wanted that body to be taken with them when they left Egypt. That was 400 years ago. Now, why in the world would Joseph make such a macabre request? The reason is simply this. Joseph was trusting in the covenant promises of God. God had made a covenant promise that he would take his people out of the land of Egypt and give them their own land. Joseph, even in his death, continued to trust in the promises of God. And he said, I will be buried in the land that God had promised to us. Joseph died believing in the promises of God. And the fact that his descendants would take his bones and leave with those bones as they left Egypt showed that they too continued to trust in the good covenant promises of God. So being led by God who cares for them, who watches out for their welfare, they were trusting in God's promises. And to leave us with no doubt whatsoever that God is with them and is guiding them, come with me to verse 21. It says, The Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. These are visible signs of God's presence with them. Verse 22 says, The cloud and the fire did not depart from the people. So we have God with them, God leading them, and they were trusting in God's promises. And yet, they find themselves in a place where they are trapped. Exodus 14.2 says, God leads them to a place, Pi-Hahiroth, where they are encamped, facing the sea. Verse 9 says, The Egyptians pursued them and overtook them and camped by the sea. They were there by the sea. In front of them was the Red Sea. They could not cross the Red Sea. And behind them was the ferocious Egyptian army. They were trapped. And the one who led them to this place was none other than God himself. The God who cares for them. The God who delivered them the God whose promises they were trusting in, he led them to this place where the Red Sea was in front of them and the ferocious Egyptian army was behind them. God was responsible for bringing them to this place where they're trapped. And in this place of feeling trapped, they cry out to God. They are in despair, verse 10 says. Friends, maybe you too are in a place of despair. You feel stuck. And you wonder to yourself, God, why did you allow me to come into this place? I thought that I'm your child. Why did you allow me to come into this place? Many years ago, uh, when uh, Carissa was first born, uh, at eight months, uh, she had a series of fits, um, and she was diagnosed with epilepsy. Uh, so for the next few years of her life, she would have to take medication three times a day just to make sure uh, she didn't have uh, a seizure and you know, that, that was difficult because we had to feed her the medicine three times a day. It kind of affected her, so she was in a daze you know, for six, seven, eight years of her life. And that was a very difficult time uh, in our lives. You know, it was eight months, and we were preparing to go to Australia for seminary and training. And so we wondered to ourselves, you know, why God? Why, why this? Why this? Now, some of the, my pastor friends, very well-meaning, they, they asked me, why do you think God allowed this to happen? And I said to them, I don't think God allowed this. I think God made this happen. I think God led us to this place. 
Uh, they were a bit stunned, you know, they started questioning my theology a bit. Uh, but let me tell you why I think that brings more comfort in despair. They're just merely thinking that God allowed bad things to happen to us. You see, friends, when we think that God merely allows bad things to happen to us, it means that He's not in full control of the situations of our lives. He's merely responding to the different circumstances that we bring to Him, and so He's not in full control. He's merely responding. He's allowing you to go somewhere, so yeah, He's with you, but He's not really in full control. Now, if He's not in full control, that means that He doesn't have an overarching purpose or intention behind your despair. So you are left with very little hope. I'm allowed to be here, but God doesn't really have a huge, a big plan for me. I'm just here. But friends, if we believe somehow mysteriously that God truly is sovereign so that even the bad things that happen to us, the despair that we're brought into, that that somehow is part of His sovereign plan for us, that brings some level of comfort, doesn't it? It shows us, firstly, that God is strong and God is mighty and God is sovereign, which means the God who led me into this place also has the power to lead me out. And not only that, the God who has the power to lead me out because he's in sovereign control has a purpose. He has a purpose in the despair. I may not understand it fully, but in hindsight, I will see it. What is God's purpose for leading his people into places where they're trapped, where they experience despair, even though he's leading them, even though they're trusting in the promises of God? What is the purpose of God in doing these things? Well, the text tells us that there are two things that God wants us to see in our despair. Number one, he wants us to see that as he leads us through places of despair, it is so that he would be made known. Look at Exodus 14, verse 4. God says, I will get glory over Pharaoh, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. Look at verse 18. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. Why did God lead Israel to this place? that he would be truly known to the Israelites, to Hebrews, but also to the Egyptians, also to the unbelieving world. Secondly, friends, the second reason is that the Hebrews, God's people, might experience God's power. Look at verse 13 in Exodus 14. Moses says, See the salvation of of the Lord, which he will work for you today. Verse 14, the Lord will fight for you. One of the purposes for God bringing you into a place of despair is so that you will experience his power in real time. You see, friends, for many of us, we have a concept that God is mighty, God is sovereign, God is in control. He's a savior. We've been brought up in Sunday school. We've sung the songs. We kind of get the concept. God is a savior. He saves me from my sins. But the truth is, if we're really honest with ourselves, it doesn't do very much for our hearts. It's just here. But it's not something we experience. And then we get to a place where we truly experience despair, where we find no way out 
and we cry out to God, and He comes through. All that theory, all that knowledge becomes a living reality in our minds and in our hearts. You merely have to talk to an older saint who has walked ahead of us in pain and in suffering to know that God works in those situations to make his name known and that we too may experience his power. I've been reading a book. Well, I've finished reading it. It's a short book. Um, it's called Persistent Prayer by a guy by the name of Guy Richard. Did I just say a guy by the name of Guy Richard? I, I did. Okay. His name is Guy Richard. And uh, it's a very helpful little book on prayer. And this is what he says. Without a sense of need, we tend to pray in a more clinical fashion. We don't pour out our hearts before the Lord. But when we find ourselves in trouble, we typically plead with the Lord with great fervency because then we understand that we have a real need that only He can meet. And he goes on to say this, part of the reason why we struggle to sense need in our lives could be that many of us are not stepping out in faith and taking risks for the Lord. The more we step out in faith, the more we are compelled to plead with him in prayer because we know that we are doomed to fail without it. Friends, you may be in a place of despair. Can I say to you very gently from God's word, not minimizing that pain at all. I've heard some of your stories and the pain is deep and the pain is excruciating and God doesn't excuse that. But can I gently say to you from God's word that the God who brought you to that place is also the God who will be made known in your life and in the world as you work through that pain. And the God who brought you there is the deliverer that you will experience as you plead and cry out to him and he comes true for you. Despair. And this despair prepares them for a great deliverance, for the crossing of the Red Sea. That's our second point. What did the Israelites have to do to experience the deliverance of God as they walked through the waters? Look at Exodus chapter 14, verse 13 to 14. Moses tells them, Fear not, stand firm, see the salvation of the Lord, and verse 14, be silent. Why? Well, verse 14, Exodus 14, 14, the Lord will fight for you. Yes, in verse 15, it says that they are to go forward, but this is in response to what God tells them. Do you see that in this passage, their role is predominantly passive and responsive? Fear not. Stand firm. See the salvation of God. Be silent. The Lord will fight for you. When he commands you, go forward. In other words, what are they supposed to do? They are to trust and obey, for there's no other way. Their role here in this deliverance is predominantly passive and predominantly responsive. They're not initiating anything. They're responding to God and what He does. Notice, on the other hand, what God does. Do you notice, as one scholar puts it, that His actions dominate the scene? He's the one doing the heavy lifting. 
Look at Exodus 14, verse 19 to 20. The angel of the Lord is a theophany, an appearance of God. He appears and he comes between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel, separating them. He's saying, these are my people. God is active. Look at verse 21. Although Moses was the one who stretched out his hand, it was the Lord, Yahweh, who drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land. Look at verse 22 to 23. It tells us that the Israelites went into the middle of the sea on dry ground, and there was a wall of water on their right and on their left. Now, I don't want you to miss that detail. They went into the midst of the sea on dry ground. That is the power of God tearing the ocean apart, so much so that the very molecules of water in the land that was previously sea was now dry. And that is the reason why the Egyptians went in with the horses and chariots. You see, the Egyptians knew that their chariots could not make headway in muddy situations. But because the ground was so dry, they went in. And it was God. God who tore apart the sea. God who formed a wall of water on their right and on their left. The Egyptians went in after them with the horses and chariots. And once again, verses 24 and 25. The Lord, he's the one that threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels. They exclaim, verse 25, let us flee, for the Lord fights for them. You see the fulfillment of God's plan. His name is being made known even in the midst of the battle with Egypt. The Egyptians are recognizing that Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, fights for them. But friends, it's too late. Again, in verse 26, although Moses is the one who stretches out his hand, verse 21 sa 27 says, it is the Lord, the Lord who threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. And finally, in verse 30, the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. My friends, uh, for some of us with more tender consciences, this may seem a bit harsh on the surface. But what's happening here is that justice is being done. You see, the Egyptians are getting what they deserve. Tim Chester puts it this way. The men of Egypt are being drowned for drowning the boys of Israel. Exodus 1.22. Just as they drowned the Hebrew boys in the Nile River, God is now bringing justice to pass. Our God is a God of justice. What's happening here is that they are experiencing the arc of the moral universe bending towards justice. Justice is being done. In God's deliverance, God does the saving. God does the heavy lifting. All God's people need to do is trust and obey. My friends, maybe you are in that difficult situation, and the first thing you're trying to do is to make a plan to get out of that difficult situation. Now, plans are not bad. They're good things. But maybe you're in a place where your plans are not really working out. You've tried this, you've tried that. You've done everything, and you're still stuck. 
And maybe, friends, that's God teaching you who he is and the nature of his salvation. Maybe you're in a place where you, all you can do is trust and all you can do is obey. Maybe you're in a place where God says to you, all you can do right now is fear not. Stand firm. See the salvation of the Lord. Be silent and go forward when I tell you to according to your word. You see the Bible in Matthew 6.33 in the context of all the worries of our life, where, what we will eat, what we will drink, where we will live, all the worries of our life, the Bible in Matthew 6.33 says, Seek the kingdom of God first and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. We've learned that so many years ago, haven't we? But it's easier said than done. But it's true, friends. Sometimes what we need to do is to seek the kingdom of God first. We cannot get our way out of the situation that we're in, no matter how hard we try. And maybe, just maybe, we should stop trying. Maybe, just maybe, we have to admit that I cannot get out of this by my own ingenuity. I've tried this. I've tried that. I'm stuck. And maybe God is saying to you, fear not. Stand firm. See the salvation of the Lord. Be silent and go forward when I tell you. What might that look like? Well, you see, God has revealed certain things in the Word of God that are His will that He wants us to obey, not because He's forcing us into a particular situation or He's harsh. His commands, His law is always good and beautiful. And perhaps as we're trying to make our way out of the difficult situations we're in, what we need to do is to take a step back and obey the first things that God calls us to. Maybe you're here and, and you're not a Christian. Uh, you're, you're not a follower of Jesus Christ. You're trying to find a way out. You're trying to figure out, will Christianity work? Well, friends, first things first. The most important thing for you, friends, is not to get out of that tough, difficult situation. The most important thing for you, friend, is to come into a right relationship with God. That is the beginning of trusting and obeying and seeing the deliverance of God. Maybe you've been visiting the church for a while and, you know, we love you and you're, you're, you're a regular visitor here, uh, but you're not quite ready to make that step to be baptized or to become a member. Again, these are not legalistic things. These are gifts, gifts of God's good grace. And maybe what you need to do in that situation that you're in, where you feel stuck, is to take a step back and say, what does God's word already say that I should do? How can I trust him and obey him and see the salvation of the Lord? Friends, it's not automatic, but you will hear testimony after testimony of people who have found freedom and joy from guilt and shame when they realize that their sins have been washed away by Jesus. And it, again, it's not automatic, but you will hear testimony after testimony of people who are initially hesitant, but then they find in the community of God's people, the church, the answer to their heart's longing. What do we need to do, friends, to move from despair to a place of deliverance? In some sense, nothing. We trust. 
We respond to God, but He does the heavy lifting. That is the nature of the deliverance of God. He is the strong one. We are weak. We are the needy ones. He is the one we need. So will you today trust and obey and see the salvation of God? Finally, delight. We know the end of the story. We know that God delivers them by his might, by his mercy. How did they respond? But look at Exodus 14.31. It says that Israel saw the great power that the Lord used, so the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord. They feared the Lord. They, showed, they stood in awe of the might and the holiness of God. But it also says they believed or they trusted in God. So they feared, they believed, but more than that, we have Exodus 15 that shows us that they delighted in the Lord. Now you see, friends, Exodus 15, verse 1 to 18, is a song. Look at verse 1 in Exodus 15. Moses and the people of Israel sang to the Lord. Now if you look at it closely, it's basically the same material that you find in Exodus 14, but in a different form. In Exodus 14, we're giving prose. We're given prose. In Exodus 15, we're given poetry. In Exodus 14, it's theology. In Exodus 15, it's doxology. In Exodus 14, Moses is narrating. In Exodus 15, he is singing and rejoicing. Have you ever wondered why Christians sing? I mean, I, I did that kind of mental exercise once. You know, if I'm a non-Christian and I step into a church and the first thing they want me to do is sing a bunch of songs, how would I feel? I think I would probably be a bit weirded out. And if that's you, it's okay. Let me explain to you why Christians sing. We sing, friends, because theology is never just meant to be in our minds. It's meant to be in our hearts. We sing, friends, because the God and the things that he does is not merely to increase our knowledge. It's to change our very being. We sing, friends, because God wants to engage not just our minds, but our hearts. Old Testament scholar Brevet Charles puts it this way. In the song, the faith of the redeemed people is portrayed. The language of joyful praise is constitutive of the redeemed. He goes as far as to say this, the sign of the redeemed is the joyful response of those who have been given a new song. You see, they didn't just need to know that God had delivered them. They needed to dwell on that and they needed to feel it in their hearts. It needed to become a fiery reality in their lives. Why, friends? Why? Why do we need the reality of what God has done to be a reality in our hearts. Because, friends, God wants to give us hope. The greatest thing you and I need when we are in despair is hope, is to know that the situation we are in is not hopeless, that there is a light at the end of the tunnel, that there is joy after the tears. And through song, God gives that to us. We dwell upon these words. We sing these words. They become fire in our hearts. And that's why as you look at the song, 
and you analyze it, well, in some sense, you're not quite supposed to analyze songs. You're supposed to sing them. But if you to analyze it, you look at verses 1 to 12, it's all material. It's stuff that has already happened. It's about the Egyptians and the Red Sea crossing. But as you begin to sing verses 13 to 18 in Exodus 15, it's new material. It's looking forward. It's not just looking back at what God had done to the Egyptians. It's looking forward as God would lead them into the promised land. And as they entered the promised land, Israel knew they would face future enemies. The Philistines, the Edomites, the Moabites, and the Canaanites. And with this song, they sung with great confidence that the God who delivered them from the Egyptians will also surely be the same God that delivers them from every future enemy to ensure that his promises will be fulfilled. The logic is simple. They look back at what God has done, and because of that, they have confidence to look to the future and say, He will indeed be faithful to his promises. And that's why the song ends on a note of such great confidence. Look at Exodus 15, verse 18. The Lord will reign forever and ever. Israel's hope isn't even just in entering the promised land. Israel's hope is anchored in the fact that God will reign for all eternity. Friends, as we draw to a close, you too can experience this movement from despair to deliverance and to delight. But friends, this is what you need to do to experience that in your own life. You have to see that you too have walked through the waters of the Red Sea. You have to see that you too have passed through and come out on the other side safely. You ask me how. Turn with me into 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We read parts of it earlier. But let me show you how the New Testament looks back at this event and makes it our story. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1 and 2, it says this, Our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. It goes on to say that they drank from the same spiritual rock, and that rock was Christ. Now, friends, there's a lot to unpack there, and we're going to do that sometime in the future when we preach through 1 Corinthians. But let me just make a few simple points. Do you see what Paul is saying here as he looks back at the Red Sea crossing? He's saying that, our fathers, they're experiencing the things that, that we've experienced. Their passing through the Red Sea is their baptism, just as we have been baptized. And their drinking from the spiritual rock is like our drinking of Christ. In some mysterious way, they are experiencing Christ and the gospel in a way that is similar to us. They look forward to Christ. We look back at Christ. How is the crossing of the Red Sea a form of baptism? 
Well, friends, we saw last week that baptism is a sign of being included among God's people and having our sins washed away. Baptism is a picture of the gospel. In Romans 6 verse 3, Paul tells us that we who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death and raised with him in his resurrection. In baptism, we have a beautiful picture of the gospel. When we believe in the gospel, we've died to sin. We've come alive to God. And that, Paul is saying, is like passing through the Red Sea. Why is that, friends? You see, in the Bible, the raging sea is a picture of God's judgment. We saw that in Noah and the flood. It's the raging sea of God's judgment that fell on the Egyptians, but that the Israelites avoided. Think along with me, friends. Did the Israelites deserve to walk through the Red Sea on dry ground? Of course not. Look at Exodus 14, verse 11 and 12. The moment things got difficult, they started complaining. They started saying to Moses, we want to serve the Egyptians. Do you know what they mean when they say we want to serve the Egyptians? It means that they don't want to serve God. In the blink of an eye, they forgot the oppression of Egypt, the mighty deliverance of God. In the blink of an eye, they had forgotten God. And yet, the story shows us that God still saves them. Why, friends? Well, because Exodus 15, 13 tells us he saves because of his steadfast love. He redeems not because they deserved it, but because he loves them. God's redemption of his people has never been by works, has never been by our deservedness. It has always been because of his steadfast love. Another translation, because of his unfailing love. God delivered them not because they deserve it, but because he loved them. And similarly, God delivered you and I from our sins, not because we deserved it in any way whatsoever, but because he loves us with his steadfast love. How does God do that? God is a God of justice. We saw that. So how can he let Israel walk through when they deserve to be judged as much as the Egyptians? How can God let us go from our sins if he is a God of justice? Well, friends, because centuries later, there will be a Hebrew who is drowned under the sea of God's judgment. And his name is Jesus Christ. In his name, he will, in him, our sins have been condemned by God once and for all. Jesus Christ, on the cross and in his death, was plunged under the sea of God's judgment so that we, in his place, may swim in the sea of his grace. Friends, if you've believed in Jesus Christ, you've walked through the Red Sea. You've walked through the Red Sea and you've come out safe and secure. When you believe in his Jesus Christ, his death is you entering the waters and his resurrection is you 
walking through safely and securely. You have walked through the waters, friends, when you have embraced Jesus Christ. And if that is true, you can look back and see what God has already done for you. If God would do that for you, whatever it is that is making your heart sad today, that is leaving in you despair today, you can bring it to him, and you can be sure that he will indeed take you home. He will indeed lead you through. He will indeed be with you and for you, not just for today, but for all eternity. You can move from despair to delight. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the way that you have put the Word of God together. It is a unity. It is a story of you saving a wayward people and bringing them home. We thank you, Lord, that the story of the Red Sea crossing is our story. It's not just a foreign story. It is our own personal story. And I thank you, Father, that you come and you speak these things to us in prose, but you also give us an opportunity to respond to you in poetry so that what is in our minds may be alive in our hearts. And we pray that today, Father, as we respond in song, that you take the truths of Scripture and you make it real for us today. We pray, Father, that no one would leave here merely having the knowledge of the gospel in our minds, but we would leave with an experience of the gospel. Father, we pray for those who are in despair and in a difficult place, unable to move forward and unable to retreat. We pray today, Father, that you would be their deliverer. You draw near to them. You show them that you are indeed the mighty God of Israel. You are indeed the one who rips apart the sea so that your people can walk through on dry land. We pray, Father, that you would send practical help, even today, a simple conversation, a caring word, and a word of encouragement. We pray that this would come to your people today to give them hope. In all things, Father, we pray that you would be glorified and you would be honored. We pray, Father, that we as a people would know you in ever-increasing reality and that we would experience your power and make you known in ever-increasing reality as well. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.